Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew? We're in chapter 5. If you're using the black Bible there that's in the, the row in front of you, you'll find today's passage on page 810, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. What Jesus told us last week, you see in verse 20, where he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we said was that when, when Jesus is saying that, what he means is not, not your cumulative righteousness score. He's not saying, all right, if you kept five more commandments than she did, you're in. What he's talking about is the depth of our righteousness. How far down does it go? Does it go down into your heart? See, the scribes and Pharisees were good at external righteousness. But the problem was internal righteousness. That's what Jesus says has to go above and beyond. Uh, And so... Over the next, uh, the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to give us six examples of what that deeper righteousness looks like. We're going to look at the first example today in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Let's give our attention to God's word. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge And the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. While the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord Jesus These are hard words, but thank you for speaking hard words, because we need to hear them. Lord, we need to be exposed. We need to see ourselves so that we can see you rightly, so we can run to you for help. And we pray that that you would be at work over the next 30 or so minutes as we explore this passage. Would you reveal Your mercy to us. We pray it in your name. Amen. Uh, I have played a few instruments in my lifetime. 
none of them particularly well. Uh, but every instrument that I have ever played, whether it was strings, the piano, or brass, the trumpet, or the tuba, that's right, I played the tuba, every instrument I have ever played needs to be tuned. Uh, every note you can play, every note you can sing, can go either flat or sharp. And if you're playing an instrument, then all of the forces of nature, and every musician knows this, all the forces of nature conspire against your instrument. Cold, heat, time, moisture, impact, all of those forces conspire against your instrument to make it go out of tune. And so what you have to have, now some some musicians can uh, tune by ear, uh, but... We, for instance, tune this piano. We have this piano tuned once a year. And what that person does is he comes and he sits down and he has a tuner, a little gadget that he sits on the piano. And when he plays a note, there's a needle on there. And it tells him whether that note is flat or sharp. And then he tightens or loosens the string. You do the same thing with a guitar uh, to bring that needle back to the middle. Right? You don't want it to be flat. You don't want it to be sharp. You want it to be in tune. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Just like musical instruments, we get out of tune. And Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be in tune with God's way of living. I want you to understand that as we go through these next uh, several passages, really as we go through this sermon, and this could even be true probably of every sermon, Jesus is not showing you how to keep the rules. Jesus is showing you how to live. We're out of tune with what it means to be human. We are way out of tune with what it means to be human. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's coming along and he's tuning us. He's showing us how to really live So three things that Jesus shows us here that we're going to look at. First, Jesus shows us what the law, God's law, is really for. I realize that's not grammatically correct, but it's how we talk. If you don't know why it's not grammatically correct, don't worry about it. Uh, Jesus shows us what the law is really for. Jesus shows us who we truly are. And Jesus shows us how to make things right. First, Jesus shows us what the law is really for. I mentioned this last week, and I'll probably mention it again because repetition is the way that I learn things. Um, Jesus, multiple times here, he's going to say he's going to say this multiple times. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. What's he doing? Well, when the scribes and Pharisees taught They would often quote scripture, and then they would often quote other teachers of scripture. So if a a scribe were giving this lesson or were teaching, he would say, as Rabbi so-and-so says, and then he would go on. So they were always referring to some other authority. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, when, when he says, you've heard that it was said, he's referring to their scribal tradition. Here's, here's what you've heard from other teachers. 
Here's what you've heard the tradition is. But I say, when Jesus does that, he is claiming to be authority in himself. You see, it's not the law that Jesus has a problem with. It's false interpretations of God's law. And when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, right, the the Old Testament prophets, if you were to go back and read Isaiah and Jeremiah, you would see this phrase over and over and over again, thus says the Lord. The Lord says this. Jesus never uses that phrase. Jesus is not just a prophet. He never says, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, I say to you. What's he doing? He's saying, I'm the Lord. I understand the law. And I understand what it's for because I gave it. I am the law giver. And as the law giver, right? Jesus is not just another teacher of the law. He's the one who gives it. And as the law giver, Jesus is able to show us what it's all about. And so he confronts false interpretations of the law. Now, were the Pharisees and scribes trying to be false? Were they trying to lead people astray? I, I don't think so. But what they did was they, they took God's law and they tried to break it into uh, easy-to-keep, manageable rules and regulations. Right? So they would take a, a principle, and I, and I mentioned this last week, um, somebody shared with me, uh, well, I'll get to that in just a second, right? They would take a law like the Sabbath and then they would break it into some manageable steps so you could know, all right, am I keeping the Sabbath or am I not keeping the Sabbath? And so I mentioned Sabbath elevators last week and then someone shared with me that there's actually a fishing line that goes around Manhattan, right? I'm going to... Mispronounce, I'm not, not going to pronounce this correctly, Eruv, E-R-U-V. And there's probably about 200 cities that have these markers, these lines. And what this line does is it helps Jews who live in Manhattan keep the Sabbath. Because they believe, scribal tradition teaches them that to carry anything on the Sabbath, say your child in a stroller, would be to break the Sabbath. And so if I'm going to leave my home on the Sabbath day, well, I'm going to have to carry my child, which means I might as well just going to have to stay home. And nobody wants to stay in an apartment in New York City with a toddler all day long. And so what they've done is they've created a fishing line that goes all around the city. It's, it's hung up in the air. So like the Macy's Day Parade gives them a heart attack. Right? Because it gets in the way of the line. It breaks the line. Right? There's a line that runs around the city and it expands the domestic zone so that you can leave your home. Right. As long as I'm as long as I'm within the line, then I'm not breaking the Sabbath. That's that's the kind of rules I'm talking about. And there's actually a rabbi who who drives around on a Thursday because the Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday, so they've got to make sure that the line is intact. He, he goes around the perimeter of the line on the Thursday to make sure that it hasn't been broken. And if he finds that it has, he calls a construction company to bring a lift so that he can get up to where the line is and rehang it. 
And they spend, according to the article I read, about $125,000 to $150,000 a year maintaining the line so that they can know that they have or have not broken the Sabbath. Now, it would be really easy to be hard on the Pharisees, except you and I do the same thing all the time. Right? God's principles, God's laws go so much further than we're willing to go. And so what we like to do is say, okay, how far is too far? How, how, far, how far can I go? How, how close to the line can I get before I've broken the law? Right? We're always looking for kind of the easy out. We, wanna, we want God's standards to be easy and manageable. Just, just give me a box to check, preacher. So that I can know that I'm doing God's will and I can move on with my life. Is it, is it church attendance? Three out of four Sundays, is that good? Is that kind of what we're hunting for? Just check that box for me, right? Uh, how much do I need to give? Can, we che- can you check that box for me, right? We always, we're, we're, we're rule makers. We're always looking to, to draw lines and determine where we're going to, we're, if we're in or out. And the problem is, We think we're good when we're not. That's called legalism. It's a form of legalism that basically takes man-made rules and traditions and says, okay, this is the standard, and as long as I follow that, I'm good. The problem is it addresses our behavior, but it doesn't address the heart. And what Jesus is after is the heart. Now, That's not to say there aren't lines. That's not to say there's not good and bad and wicked and righteous. In fact, again, back in verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells us that God's law remains until this age is over. That it is a standard of righteousness. That we can look to God's law to determine what is good. So God's law is good. The problem is when we take it And we make it principles for managing external behavior, but we don't address the heart. That's what Jesus wants to deal with. Let me illustrate it this way. You have two children. Uh, One is a rule follower. Uh, She makes her bed every day. She keeps all of her clothes out of the floor. Every firstborn child in the room is like, that's right. That is how life is meant to be lived. Um, then you have another child. Uh, she does not make her bed. She often forgets that there are clothes in her floor. Good, I mean, uh, dirty, clean. Who knows, right? They're just there. So externally, as parents, you go righteous, unrighteous. She makes the bed righteous. She does not unrighteous. Now, let's take it a level deeper. Bedmaker is despicable to her siblings. Bossy, manipulative. She's unkind to other people. Uh, She often gossips about those with whom she works. This other, other sister, the one who doesn't know if the clothes on her floor are dirty or clean, she's compassionate to her siblings. Uh, when she notices a coworker who is down, 
Uh, she loves them well. She looks after them. She calls them to check on them. By that standard, who's righteous and who's unrighteous? We have an affinity for the external, and we often overlook the internal. And it's the internal with which Jesus wants us to deal. So Jesus shows us what the law is really for. The law is meant to drive us inward. And that leads to point number two. Jesus shows us who we truly are. I said that Jesus is confronting uh, false interpretations. What does he confront here? Verse 21 He says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So far, so good. Right? He quotes one of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. And then uh, he he mentions a quote uh, talking about a penalty, judgment, that you could derive from the Old Testament. So if you murder someone, if you unjustly kill another person, you'll face judgment. Again, the Old Testament teaches that. So far, so good. But the problem that Jesus wants to expose is that we often stop there. We think that murder is simply the act of taking a physical life. We leave it at the surface. And I, do, I think it's kind of interesting that uh, murder is like our gold standard for judging ourselves against other people. Right? We'll often use murder as an excuse. Like... You know, sure, I cheated on my taxes, but I haven't murdered anybody, right? Have you ever said something like that? I mean, yeah, I told a white lie, but at least I haven't killed anybody, right? Murder is like this gold standard. Like, it's, it's the lowest common denominator. Like, surely we don't have to, like, nobody really crosses that line very often. So I find it interesting that Jesus actually starts probably where we think we're doing pretty well. Like, I think if we just rolled the Ten Commandments out in front of us, you know, we'll worship our children before we worship God all day long. I mean, we break the first and second commandment left and right. But murder? Never. Right? Sabbath? We struggle with that. We struggle to rest one day in seven. But we would never murder. And it's right there that Jesus jumps on. And shows us just how wrong we are. Here's what he says in verse 22. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What's he saying? Anger in your heart and insults on your lips are the same as blood on your hands. Anger in your heart and insults on your lips are the same as blood on your hands. You are guilty and deserve judgment. Murder in the heart. Anger. This would, this would be unrighteous hatred. There is such a thing as righteous anger. I'm not 100% sure I've ever felt it. But you will see Jesus uh, in the New Testament, even as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see times when Jesus gets irritated. You'll see times when Jesus gets angry. But whenever Jesus is angry or irritated, it is usually for someone else. It is for the glory of God because people are blocking someone's access to God. 
It is over lack of faith. It's never unrighteous. Usually when I'm angry, it's because someone has offended me. And I feel the need to take up that offense and go to war. So what Jesus says is how you feel about someone matters. See, what's interesting is no court can convict you of anger. They can convict you of murder. No hum- a human court can easily convict you of murder if they have the evidence to do so. But anger? You could commit this crime and no one would ever know it. Except the Lord. How you feel about someone matters. Murder on the lips. What you say to someone or about someone You remember the old playground rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, Wounds often heal. Bones often mend. Words can leave damage that lasts for a lifetime. What you say to someone, what you say about someone, matters. And in the digital age, this applies to words that you type. On Facebook, things you say on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, email. Some people still use email. Text messages, right? What, what you say, whether with your Mouth or with your fingertips matters. When we insult other people, Jesus says it's murder. You don't have to shoot or stab someone to be a murderer. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking God's law and he's using it as a mirror. Right? He is putting it in front of us to reflect to us who we really are. And what that mirror says is, I am a murderer. Friend, let God's word do its work in your heart. Let let the law sink in and convict you. Let Let the light of truth go down to the deepest parts of who you are. In fact, Jesus is even telling us, here's a, good way, here's a good way to identify that you have a sin problem. That when you lash out at someone with your words, Jesus' invitation to you is to, yes, repent of that, but also follow that back to your heart. Where did that come from? Why did you lash out? What were you trying to protect? What were you trying to prove? That's an invitation to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to do His work in your heart so that that can be rooted out. Don't let that pass you by. Let the law do its work. Let it expose who you really are. And then, not only does Jesus show us who we really are, but He also shows us how to make it right. In 23 through 26, Jesus gives us two illustrations of reconciliation. One, uh, we might say, 
illustration uh, or uh, reconciliation in the church. Uh, and then the second one, reconciliation in the community. Uh, but both of them make the same point. Don't wait to be reconciled. Don't waste any time in reconciling your offenses. Christians should lead the way in repentance and reconciliation. Right? We often read verses like this and we think, man, if only so and so would hear that. That's not, Jesus does not, Jesus does not say this for your friend. He says it for you and for me. We often, right, when, when there is a grievance, we often want to justify ourselves. We often want to defend ourselves. I wouldn't have said that if she hadn't first. But that's not how Jesus tells us to live. He says, be quick to reconcile. Don't waste any time. Uh, Verses 25 and 26, he shows us what this looks like in society. Right. He says, if you're going as you're going to court with someone, so somebody has accused you of something, you're guilty, you're in the wrong, you're going to court. Now's the time to make friends. That's that's literally what it says. Come to terms, make friends with your accuser. You're the guilty party. Seek to make it right before you receive judgment. And it's too late. Verses 23 and 24 show us what this would look like in the church. He talks about. As you're, as you're going to offer your sacrifices at the altar. So in Jesus' day, this would be somebody carrying their sacrifice to the temple. But we could say, coming into church, right? Coming into the sanctuary. As you're coming in the door, you make eye contact with Ted. And you quickly turn your eyes away. Because you realize that Ted has something against you. And you need to make it right. The Holy Spirit says you need to tell Ted you're sorry about what you said. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, even as you're bringing your gift to the altar, even as you're coming to worship, if you realize your brother has something against you, leave it. Jesus says, interrupt worship to reconcile with your brother. Reconciling an offense takes priority over worship. Does that seem crazy to you? I mean, surely like a first things first, like, okay, well, let me get done with the worship service. We'll handle all that. Then I can handle what I need to handle with Ted after the fact. Jesus says, nope, you can't do this until you handle this. Why is that? Well, think about it. What, what is it that we're doing in worship? We, we come here to worship a holy God whom we have offended. Right? I'm a sinner who has offended God. But God, in his love, has sent his son to reconcile with me. So even though I'm the guilty party, he reconciles with me. And the only reason that I can stand here praying prayers and singing songs is because God has reconciled himself to me. So how could it possibly be right 
for me to want to worship a reconciling God while I'm unwilling to reconcile with a brother. I can't. Not honestly. Not truly. Not from the heart. Because there's something in the way. There's a grievance. There's an offense that that needs to be dealt with. And that's what God does for us. And he calls us to do that with others. In a minute, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And one of the things we say when we invite people to come and take communion, there's, there's two requirements. You're at peace with God and you're at peace with your neighbor. That's because this is a table of reconciliation. Right? We're remembering the, the blood and the body that Jesus spent to reconcile us to God. And so we ought, therefore, to reconcile with others. And in saying this, Jesus reminds us of our ultimate hope. Not only does he show us that we're all murderers, but he also reminds us that there's hope for murderers. He became, Paul says, he became sin for us. That means, again, I'm a, I'm a guilty sinner who's offended a holy God. But Jesus took my murderous heart and words and deeds and he put them on himself. And then he gave me his righteous heart and his righteous words and his righteous deeds. So that when God looks at him on the cross, he sees me, the murderer, and kills me. And he looks at me and he sees his righteous son and he says, not guilty. There's hope for murderers in Jesus. And so this morning, if you struggle with anger, unjust hatred, If you struggle to keep your mouth shut, if you struggle to not wound others with your words, and yes, even if you've committed acts of murder with your hands, come to Jesus. Turn from your hateful and murderous ways. And be reconciled to God through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the gospel, that in the cross, and in the empty tomb, there's hope for murderers like us. There's reconciliation for murderers like us. For people who have repeatedly wounded And harmed others. We can receive forgiveness at the cross. Lord, would you lead us to repent? Show us ourselves so that we don't live in the delusion of innocence. Thinking, ah, surely not that bad. But also show us your mercy. That when we come clean, when we repent... You forgive, and you dress us in your righteous robes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.